And the thing that's going to happen, the thing that just happens is that when you have hard times, when you're stressed, when things are more difficult, that is when they resurface, right? That's that's when you hear more like, oh, these thighs or this waistline. You hear those negative thoughts about your body or you get pulled into all the old diet talk again. And that's what happens in midlife. That's why women in midlife are at higher risk for relapse because all that stuff is getting louder and your body is actually different. Welcome to This Is Aging, a podcast on a mission to explore the upside of getting older. We're your hosts, Dana Schultz and Melissa Reeves, two friends approaching midlife who are fed up with anti-aging culture and refuse to believe that life was all downhill after 40. We believe life can get better with age and we're here with the stories to prove it. Join us and our inspiring guests as we flip the aging narrative on its head and trade fear for curiosity and celebration. Hey everyone, Melissa here. I am really excited about this episode coming out right before Christmas because it's such an essential conversation for the holidays. We have Deb Benfield of Aging Body Liberation. And at a time of year when the messages around bodies and aging and societal expectations and beauty standards is just turned up way to 11. And not just women, but humans are feeling so much shame and self-criticism and self-doubt. This is so, so important. Deb is actually one of my very favorite people to follow on social media. She is so incredibly thought-provoking and inspirational. I highly recommend connecting with her there. This is actually also the very first interview that we ever recorded. I do also have an update for you about the podcast. Some of you may have seen Dana's update on social media, or perhaps you have noticed that it's been just me, Melissa, doing the introductions of the last couple of episodes. And I'm really bummed to say that Dana has chosen to step back from being involved in the podcast due to some personal circumstances. You can check out her post on Instagram if you want to hear a little bit more I'm sending her so much love in this time of life that, like for so many of us in midlife, is full of transition and uncertainty. It has been such a eye-opening, deeply rewarding, and super, super fun project to work on with Dana. I will be continuing to produce the show and interview amazing guests. I'm going to be broadening the focus a little bit, not just to aging, but all of the different transitions that we go through in life related to motherhood, relationships, career, raising kids, all of these things that are thresholds that we go through and we need wisdom for. So if you have any ideas of conversations you'd like to hear about or guests you'd love me to connect with, please just send in an email or connect with us on social media. I'm super grateful for all of you that are here and have been listening and supporting the show. So please stick with me as we go through one of these transitions. On that note, I do also want to share that at the beginning of February, February 1st to 4th, I'm going to be facilitating a retreat called Threshold that's going to be here in Austin, just near Austin, actually, out in Hill Country. We've got a really, really beautiful venue set in nature out there. This is a retreat for women who are going through some kind of big life transition. So it could be the transition of becoming a mother, going through a divorce, midlife transitions, 
career, loss of faith, loss of a loved one, any of these things, if they're going on in your life, this is a place for you to come, be supported, be witnessed, and engage in a transformational process to really move through your transition and find purpose and wholeness. This is going to be four days of restorative movement, delicious, nourishing food, incredible time with other women and a chance to really share your story and be seen as well as support others. We've got an amazing venue out in Hill Country with beautiful views, walking trails, a hot tub and a heated pool, fire pits and all the cozy little nooks. And I'm offering an early bird special until the end of the year. So December 31st, it's $300 off the total price. So that brings the price to $1,200 to $1,400, depending on your accommodation choice. So you can check it out at my website, melissareeves.com. That's two L's and one S. Or of course, I'll share a link in the show notes and you can also find us on social media and it'll, it'll be shared there. I would love to have you join me. Facilitating retreats is my absolute favorite thing to do. Bringing people together in person to have a flesh and blood experience and encounter with themselves, with each other, is truly, I believe, one of the most healing things and so needed, especially in our time. Okay, let's get into our episode. Hello, everyone, and welcome to today's episode of This is Aging. We have a very special guest with us today that we're excited to learn from and share her wisdom. Deb is a expert in the field of body liberation and pro-aging. Um, she invites our listeners today to blaze a liberating new path to a respectful, nurturing relationship with your body, with your aging body. She has helped hundreds of women heal their relationship with food, eating, and their bodies in her more than 35-year career as a registered dietitian and nutritionist and a registered yoga teacher specializing in preventing and treating disordered eating. Now in her 60s, she focuses her research, passion, training, and clinical expertise in the intersection of pro-aging and body liberation. Welcome, Deb. We're so excited to have you. Yeah, I'm excited to talk to you. Uh, Deb, can you start just a little um, by telling us a little bit about how you got to this point in your career and what led you specifically to the intersection of pro-aging and body liberation? Sure. I, as you just heard, have been working in the field of eating disorder prevention and treatment my entire career. And I'll just briefly say that I'm very fortunate in that when I started practicing after grad school in the 80s, I started referring clients to therapists. So I started developing a relationship with therapists in my community. And there was one particular therapist that invited me to join her practice and her specialty was eating disorders. So I got a very um, quick introduction to this work and supervision in that field from the get-go. So I'm, I'm very grateful for that. And then as I turned 60 not that long ago, what feels like not long ago, I got very frustrated with what I saw in the field of pro-aging and certainly anti-aging messages because they were so contaminated by diet and wellness culture mm. messages, rule sets. So I got angry and concerned and sad and 
decided I wanted to create what I was looking for. So that's what I've been up to lately. Hmm. That's a very interesting juxtaposition between the language of pro-aging and anti-aging because it feels like even a lot of times when the term pro-aging is used, it's just a slightly modified mm-hmm. version of anti-aging. Mm-hmm. Yes. Yeah. Have, what have you What have you noticed in how people actually speak about it? Well, I think the intention is to support embracing and accepting aging, but I think it's gotten really confusing and confused with, yes, we are going to affirm aging, especially women's bodies, Mm -hmm. but they look the same when it comes to our beauty ideal and our body hierarchy in our culture, because there's the same emphasis on thinness, just with silver hair. So the implication is it's okay to age as long as you stay fit and thin. Is how it, that's how it comes across. Mm-hmm. Right. Like the, the saying of, oh, well, she looks great for her age. Or um, yeah. even my, I've done that myself. I've idealized myself at 70 and I'm the woman in the yoga class still got it, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, but I don't know what my experience is going to be. And I hope I accept the, that ride with grace. But right. do you have any um, wisdom to share on your own journey uh, toward I mean, as you call it, body liberation, which maybe you could speak a little bit about how you define that. I, because of, you know, all of my work with trying to encourage women to be comfortable in the bodies that they're in, because it's already kind of where my head and heart live, I think aging is just another piece of that journey and in a very oppressive culture. You know, we're just living with so much pressure to look a certain way and contain our bodies and control our bodies. And I think we don't even realize it. Mm. It's just coming at us all the time, especially in the the images that we're exposed to. So our bodies have their own trajectory. There's a force of nature at play, especially in a woman's body with puberty. And then if you choose to bear children and then in midlife and menopause, these are all times that your body actually is shifting and changing. And the fact that there's this pressure that we're receiving from our culture to contain that, to control that, therein lies, you know, the opportunity for us to like step back and look at like our choice there. There's there's an opportunity and there's potential for great struggle. Yeah, it feels really powerful to me. The thing that comes to mind in hearing that is, you know, the, the saying or the mantra of I trust my body. Mm-hmm. If my body has its own trajectory and I trust my body to lead me there, why does it sometimes feel like when I say that, there, my, my mind or perhaps my ego goes to, well, that's letting myself go? <laughs> yeah. Um, I'm sure that's just a toxic, reinforced response to that. And I'm wondering if you could speak a little bit to like why maybe I and probably other people feel that way. Happily. It's one of my favorites, kind of my pet peeve. 
that phrase because to me, when I hear she's let herself go, it's a cause for great celebration because it means you've let go of the oppressive beauty standards. You've let go of the oppression and you're making your way to loving on your own body, to um, living with a great sense of freedom in the body that you're in. So it's unfortunate. I mean, I, you can almost see it on somebody's face when they look at another woman. Oh, she's let herself mm. go. You can just see it. You can just see that judgment. And I think we all need to really listen to where that's coming from. We, that's learned. That's part of a narrative that we've learned, that we must be always hypervigilant. We must be manipulating what we eat, how we move, all the things to to fall in line with keeping your body in a certain, you know, ideal state, which is very disordered. And I think that brings us to your valuable expertise on disordered eating. And I find for me, you know, I I had an eating disorder from a young age, from around the age of, I think, 13 or 14. I was bulimic. And I continued that behavior for decades, including into my motherhood journey. And when I, in my early 30s, which is over a decade ago now, began to, I, I'd actually been doing the work of, un, of unraveling and healing for years, but it, it took a long time. And it wasn't until my early 30s that I was able to really reorient my relationship with my body and begin to make radically different choices. And what I found is that the pendulum had to swing really far in terms of the gentleness that I treated myself with. Mm -hmm. And then fast forward a few years later, and that gentleness had turned into a, an, another version of unawareness, right? I was now not present with my body in another way, right? I wasn't moving very much. I wasn't I, it, it, using that language again of letting myself go or letting someone, you know, letting oneself go. I didn't use that language about myself, but there are ways I can see it that I stopped caring for myself. And so I'm really curious how, how you help women that are in this unraveling of the wellness culture and these messages of keeping up appearances and maintaining an ideal body. How do we let go of that and also know how to care for ourselves? Right. How long do we have? <laughs> There's a lot to say. <laughs> There's well, a lot. I feel like you've just very yeah, we have, beautifully we have articulated, you know, <laughs> the center of this issue, and that is like you can get caught up in disordered eating and exercise and what I think is like manipulative. And you can is it okay if we aren't clean? With our language, yeah, this yeah, in. this probably won't yeah. be a clean podcast. <laughs> if you go to this fuck it place, which is where I think people go, and that's kind of what I heard when you said yeah. pendulum swing, where you're just completely like are not being intentional. So that doesn't feel good either. So our bodies mm. really love to move, and our body bodies really love to be fed in particular ways, and that shifts and changes. And different life cycles and different maybe day to day. And you kind of have to get in touch with your body and listen in 
with some true respect to be able to find the guidance there to like, it would, it would feel good to get up and move or it would feel good to go for a walk. It would feel good to have something crunchy and fresh. It would be good to have something creamy and warm. I mean, that is available to us when we get out of all the head stuff, when we get out of trying to get it right or the resistance. Because when you go through an eating disorder or when you have chronic deprivation and restriction in your life, you literally have this one disconnect. There's a true disconnect that that connection that you were likely born with that told you when to eat and when to stop, that told you when you wanted to go play, gets fractured when you get all in diet culture and following the rules. So to heal that fracture is one big important thing. And that takes time and it takes strategy that's very much like if you're going to heal a relationship where there was a fracture, what you do when you approach that repair work is to really cultivate attention, really attending to that person, really trying to listen with some passion and compassion to that person. The same thing goes with your body, to really try to attend to your own self, your own body messages, and to have some passionate listening there. So it requires some practice, some mindful practice. And over time, really developing some, even consent asking, like, maybe I don't feel like exercising today. Maybe I feel like today's a good rest day. I mean, almost like consent conversation with your body. And then there's trust in small steps, very small steps, no grand gestures, just like in a relationship. Small steps over time create repair and trust. So that's kind of the process. So there's understandably a resistance. This is hard work. It's not that easy. There are no boxes to check. You really have to tune into yourself. You really have to give yourself your own attention. And there's resistance to all of it along the way because it was so hard when you were over-exercising and dieting. It was so uncomfortable there. It's, it's kind of reparative to at first do that fucking thing where you're just like, okay, I'm just going to let myself be for a while mm -hmm. and then slowly approach this process of healing. That's the way I think about it. Yeah, it takes time. that's really powerful. It does take time for me, decades, you know, and, and even, even going about these conversations is, is part of the healing. It's, con you know, it's continuing. Um, i I find that, you know, what you said about just listening, it takes, it takes so much attentiveness and the attentiveness can feel mm -hmm. exhausting. And, oh. and perhaps you can speak to that because I don't think I've gotten yet to a point where the attentiveness doesn't feel exhausting. Yeah. It's hard enough to quiet your own mind and get, I like to think of it like, um, like the choppy surface of the ocean and how that's kind of my mind. But when I kind of go down deep into my heart and my gut, I kind of get down below the surface where it's really quiet. And I, that's where I hear my own intuitive being and just getting there, like convincing my mind to calm down enough to get down there is one uh, feet and then listening and really honoring what is what I hear there and what I sense 
But then once I come back up to the surface, so to speak, and I re-enter into the real world, I'm I'm like facing a barrage of counter messages about, I mean, I don't know that many people that have a truly healthy, balanced relationship with food in my life, which is really hard. Um, like eating disorders are just so pervasive, I feel. I don't, I don't think that they're, um, people don't have a lot of good awareness around what a healthy relationship around, you know, diet and taking care of yourself really looks like outside of diet culture. Right. It's so normalized. What I think is disordered is now so normalized that it is very mm. hard to find support, to find community and a sense of belonging with others who are also trying to do this healing work. Yeah. And I love what you said about all the effort to, to quiet and get to your, your inner truths in little ways and big ways. And that's effortful. And then to kind of set some real boundaries with all of the noise from the culture, because you can set some boundaries. You can unfollow accounts. You can turn things off. You can speak up in relationships where, like, I'm not doing the, the body shaming talk. I'm not doing that anymore. You have to, you have to really kind of what I think is like this is new growth. If you are a gardener, you, you can see that there's like a fresh shoot that's all tender and green. And you want to like really protect that fresh new growth sometimes by putting a netting up or like no birds can come and get the fruit. I mean, you really do have to protect this new place in your life that you're cultivating very slowly and mm -hmm. with your own love and care. Yeah, just I'm sure readers are wondering, like, well, do I have a healthy relationship with food? I think I do. And even recently myself, I thought, no, I'm actually at the best place I've ever been. But when I really looked back, like, oh, only recently, not not too far ago, I actually was in another disordered pattern. Mm -hmm. And um, I'm curious if you could spell out the differences between what is the difference between an eating disorder and someone who's just eating or eating healthy? Yeah. Wow, you guys are asking such great questions. Um, to me, I don't even, the word normal is such a, I don't even know a good word to use other than something that feels like innate, something that feels connected. And we use the word norm, normal for lack of a better word. It's messy. It's different, different days. It's trying to listen to what your body is interested in, but sometimes that's too much to ask. Sometimes you can't access that. Sometimes you're too busy or you just don't have the food oh. you really love on hand. So there's a little bit of privilege in that, isn't there? You may not be able to actually do that. But overall, trying to honor what your body is letting you know when it comes to hunger and satisfaction, to try to give yourself permission to eat the food that is truly satisfying. And then like sometimes just because you want to, like it's okay to eat for emotional reasons. I know that this is, that's really stepping on a whole nother area, but it's normal human behavior to eat sometimes for emotion. Not all the time. Hopefully there mm -hmm. are other ways that you can regulate your emotions and your nervous system, but that is normal to do that sometimes and to eat just because like 
cookies are coming out fresh out of the oven and they smell great. I mean, sometimes so you're going to eat just because it's <laughs> yummy. Yeah. So it's not this perfect, rigid. I mean, I think that's the, one of the hallmarks of what I consider to be kind of normal eating is it's there's flexibility there. There's less rigidity and there's an absence of feeling guilt. Like there's no, like, I've been bad conversation. That, that to me is a hallmark of disorder. So rigidity and guilt and shame are signs that you've got a disordered relationship with. It's not, to me, it's not the actual food. It's the way you think about it and the way you move through your day. So I hope that makes sense. Mm. That's really helpful. That's really helpful because I think there's probably lots of listeners who haven't experienced a, a, a really noticeable eating disorder like bulimia or anorexia that wouldn't recognize themselves in this struggle. And then there's people like me who come from a background of extreme disordered eating who have found a much more, a much healthier way of interacting with food. And what I have recently uncovered in my own journey is that I actually, when I was able to cross the threshold of stopping the behavior of purging after meals, which was massive for me to be able to, to do that, I kind of, I did not know this at the time, but I basically, I was so exhausted from the effort of that, that I said, I'm done. I, I can't do any more work on this, right? So I wasn't able to look closely any longer. I just had to say, look, I've done what I can do. I've done the hard or hardest part, what felt like the hardest part to me. And now I just need to rest, right? And so yeah. for when you say that, I think of the bowl of peaches and yogurt that I ate this morning. And numerous times while I was eating it, I had the thought, should I be eating this? Shouldn't I wait till lunch? You know, I've got an interview at 11 o'clock. I should probably wait. Like just, just very low level insidious thoughts. It's not like I thought some terrible thought about my body or spent an hour beating myself up. I didn't go purge afterwards, but I still had these little, these little like quiet whispers of shame, of judgment, of that guilt that you're talking about. Yeah. I just think it takes a long time to heal. I, and I think every time you hear one of those harsh, critical messages to whenever you feel like it's available to you to, to kind of go, I hear you. There you are again. And I don't need you anymore. I don't, I, that's, not, that's not how I roll now. That's, I don't need that. I think you have to really talk to yourself. I think you have to talk to yourself with as much compassion and love. It is kind of like reparenting. You have to meet that harsh voice with that loving, like, I hear you, and I don't need you anymore. It's okay, sweetie. I like using terms of endearment for this process to really go, like, you're good. You're doing great. And maybe slowly over time. Mm -hmm. It will dissipate. And the thing that's going to happen, the thing that just happens, is that when you have hard times, when you're stressed, when things are more difficult, that is when they resurface, right? That's, that's when you hear more like, 
oh, these thighs or this waistline. You hear those negative thoughts about your body or you get pulled into all the old diet talk again. And that's what happens in midlife. That's why women in midlife are at higher risk for relapse because all that stuff is getting Mm. louder and your body is actually different. So it's you feel yourself being pulled back into those old patterns. So to try to give yourself as much of that attention, as much of your own love and care as you possibly can so that you can stay with yourself, stay on your path, hmm. stay with your body. Yeah, I, I feel like, yeah, that's so wise. I think the thing on my journey anyways that is becoming more difficult is when I'm craving something, I eat it and I eat it until mm-hmm. I'm satisfied. Yay. And I do that for a little while and then my body starts changing and then I start mm. getting mm. afraid because mm. I'm like, wait, I thought that this was mm-hmm. going to feel good all the time. And then those judgments of shame come back in. And I'm wondering if you have any practices or mantras mm. or yeah. you know, ways to embrace the changes that we are experiencing as we relax into that trust with our bodies. Yeah, I think. And I'm curious also, you know, one of the things in disordered eating communities that it's spoken a lot of is, well, your body has a set point. So if you just, sure, you might gain a little weight and you might lose a little bit of weight and then you'll find where you're happy. And I'm, I'm curious, as we age, should we expect our body's set point and shape to change as well. That's not something that's commonly spoken about, but I know for myself, when I do idealize Dana at 70, I'm still thinking of basically Dana like in my 30s, but with gray hair, which is probably setting myself up for failure. So I'm wondering if you could speak a bit to that fluctuating set point and how we can embrace that change and ride the waves as our bodies change. Yeah. So the first thing that you said when you started talking about that was like following your cravings and allowing yourself to enjoy the food you love and then seeing your body shift and change created fear. I think that's the opportunity is to like really drill down and say, I wonder what I'm afraid of. So what happens? So what Mm -hmm. happens if my body changes? The social narrative is there's only one way to have a body. And every other kind of body is marginalized. And I think that's that amps up when you get older. Like you're more further marginalized because you're in an older body, because we're in a youth-obsessed culture. So you have to really get comfortable with pushing against the social narrative to really get comfortable with, like, I'm going to be who I am regardless of some story that there's only one way to have a body. You really have to push that. And that helps with a fear. If you're going to have a focal point for the process, I would look at that to really look at this is a body justice movement. Like it's rooted in like, I don't want to get too philosophical or political, but it's rooted in feminism. That there are all kinds of ways to be in a body that's powerful and that the patriarchy that's telling us is only one way to freeze frame your body is the, the root of the toxicity and white supremacy. 
So we have to push against all of those cultural forces, and that's not easy. But to be aware of that, sometimes that helps. Sometimes it helps to remember that you're part of a movement, that you're really mm-hmm. taking care of yourself so that you'll have the power to do what you want to do in the world. Because to be hungry, I mean, can we just talk about when your body is underfed, your brain is underfunctioning. Your brain is more anxious. Your brain is more obsessive. Your brain is less likely to focus. You have less access to executive functioning. You have you're more likely to be in that lizard brain place where you're reactive, more emotionally erratic. It's not a fun place to be, and you're definitely not in your in your personal best power. So you're going to have to make some hard decisions. Like, do I want to keep focusing on this body thing? I mean, I will tell you, I get calls from women, 60s, 70s, 80s, that talk about starting their diets when they were teenagers, and they're ready to be free. And they all have huge grief about the years that they lost of their lives. So now is the time. It's a very important time. That's why I got excited to talk to you, because it's really (laughs) important to talk about this now as soon as possible. Because this is this needs to be a multi-generational conversation for lots of reasons. And it's very powerful for you to talk to women way before they get to like their fifties and sixties, if if possible. That's the whole. So yeah, you've that's got life energy that's available is... to you if you decide to stay with eating what you love. If you stay mm-hmm. with that, regardless of the changes in your body, you will have so much more access to yourself. You'll have so much more access to your own energy source, your own brain power. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I was, I just circling back to that, like, should we expect our bodies in our 40s, 50s, 60s, 70s, 80s to fluctuate and change and Mm -hmm. see that as normal? Because I, for some reason, I just don't see that as um, very commonly spoken about. Well, we don't see it. We just don't see those images. My, you know, this is one of my obsessions. I'm constantly looking for these images and I'm starting to see them in Europe, but I don't see them. In the U.S. yet, it's still what you just said, the same thinness, the same hyper-focus on fitness, and the same body. But the truth is, yes, your body changes, shape, changes composition. We have lots of data on the fact that you lose muscle mass, no matter how much protein and how much strength training you do. Your body composition mm. changes. At, it actually starts in perimenopause. So you guys probably already know this. I mean, it starts really early. <laughs> and my fear and my experience is that when that happens, what the reaction to it is to further white knuckle around restriction and exercise. So it increases mm-hmm. the risk of disordered eating. Just at a time that women need to yeah, be because, into their power. Right. Because if what you used to do to be active 
kept you at a baseline that felt comfortable for you is no longer working, then you're going to be, like you just said, highly at risk for feeling like you need to push yourself harder. You need to limit yourself right. more. And, right. you know, that's, that's just a natural result of this way of thinking about ourselves. Right. Yeah. You had spoken somewhere, maybe it was on Instagram, about your thoughts about the Martha Stewart image on the cover of Sports Illustrated and and just kind of harking back to what we already talked about, about the idealization of, yes, you're older and you're gray, but you're still thin and you're still white and, you know, whatever whatever those ideal images may be. Can you speak a little bit to that, to, to, to what we see in in mainstream culture and in the media? Yeah, again, so much pressure. You know, I want women to feel like they can age the way they want to age. I believe in body autonomy. And I also want women to be awake to the oppressive stories that they've lived with for so, so long. I mean, I have been writing about this lately, and I've been thinking about all of the ads I don't, you probably don't know the special K ad. <laughs> I hope you don't. But my generation was exposed to this ad by special K that said, if you can pinch an inch and it would show like this person pinching their waist, if you can pinch an inch, you need to be doing the special K diet. <laughs> and of wow. course we go immediately <laughs> pinch, right? It's, it's, everybody has an inch to pinch at least. And so it's just so common for women to feel like they must do all that they possibly can to control their bodies. So if you are, I mean, Martha Stewart, I don't know, 80, 81, you know, she has been exposed to diet culture a very long time. And she also, you know, is in a prominent position. So her appearance, you know, is she's getting a lot of attention and pressure around that. So I, mm -hmm. nothing, nothing personal. And again, I believe in body autonomy. I just think women need to be aware of all of the pressure that they're facing. And my hope is that by the time you get to 60s, 70s, 80s, the story is a very different story. That's why I've been talking about it. Because I'm, I'm hopeful that there's potential for change. Yeah, that just kind of led me to this thought I saw on your Instagram page recently, Deb, that you were speaking about that one of the main messages you feel passionate about communicating to women in midlife, but also I, I would assume women of all ages, is that life, you know, during and after perimenopause and menopause, life gets better and easier. And that you yourself in your 60s presently feel the best you've ever felt in your whole life. And I want to hear about that because really mm -hmm. I don't I don't see any messaging or you know advertising around that and I feel that largely the yeah. the vibe and messaging around aging and postmenopause is it's all downhill and buckle up and here it comes and <laughs> your life's over and so I'd love if you could just inject you know some joy and a counter narrative to that and give you know, women at our stage in life, something to look forward to. Yeah, I, I first want to own all the privilege that I have because I am still able-bodied and I have thin privilege, white privilege, so many privileges. And 
I'm just probably lucky genetically because I do. I literally feel great. I I don't want to say too much about that because it feels like I'm speaking from so much privilege that that it's problematic. But I do think we need to hear more about yes, perimenopause and menopause weren't fun. There was there was a lot to navigate. But on the other side, I truly believe there's a lot of opportunity. I think there's, I truly believe that hot flashes are like burning off the layers of oppression and Mm -hmm. that actually you're getting to your core self. I also believe that our girlhood selves are our authentic selves and when we were girls, we were just, you know, pretty oblivious to the gaze of others, I guess, if we were lucky, and like not trying to please and make sure everybody thought we were, I don't know, sexy, interesting, attractive. And of course, at puberty, mm-hmm. all that changes, and you get really caught up in pleasing the external gaze. So there is a magic that happens with that could happen at menopause where you no longer worry so much. I think there are fewer folks available for caring about what others see. So you get access mm-hmm. to your girlhood self again. And that feels really good to me. That feels like there's a lot of power mm-hmm. there. And I know that also is a privilege because not all childhood experiences were, you know, pleasant. So there are layers of privilege in the story. But I do believe that there is is potential for feeling really good as you age. And we need to talk a lot. We need to talk so much more about it. There's so much fear mongering and there's so much to sell you, right, out of fear. That's what fear mongering does is it sells products and programs. Yeah, if you do this yeah, workout, absolutely. if you buy these supplements, and if you follow this plan, you'll feel better. Yeah, we've heard this from other women too, and I remember hearing from one particularly that as she approached around the same age as you, that she, yes, she might be getting less attention, quote unquote, from men or from society, but that it actually frees her up to know mm-hmm. that when she really has a connection with someone that it's it's not about her appearance or if she's mm-hmm. sexy enough or attractive or interesting enough she can trust that that connection is really it is just what it is and that was really inspiring to me to think about because there's mm-hmm. so much even at the stage of life that I'm in as a mother and in my 40s feeling beginning to feel invisible and like I'm no longer getting the attention that I might have gotten when I was younger and still wanting that, you know, still, still wishing that that was more available to me. And I, it's so encouraging to imagine that, that I can, that can be one of the things that, that I let go, right, of is the intensity of that need for, for attention or for validation in that way from society. There are a lot of parallels between menopause and and early motherhood, I think, because there are Mm -hmm. a lot of like messages about you can no longer be a sexual being, you can no longer be a sexy person, you can't wear the same clothes. I mean, so much pressure to like snap back. And there are a lot of parallels between the two. Yeah. For sure. 
Yeah, all of these different life stages that we go through, not just as women, but especially as women. And I I love the conceptual progression of going from maiden, which I love your description of our girlhood selves being our truest or most authentic selves. And then we go through through motherhood or through that, you know, middle lifetime and then into into the crone, the elder, right? The the wise woman. And so I'd love to hear your thoughts on that because one of the things we really want to emphasize on this show is is what we gain as we get older. You know, there's so much that we focus on around what we lose. And even in this conversation, we're talking about some of the struggles that come with being in a female body and feeling all of this pressure from culture. But what do we really gain as we get older? I mean, we're experiencing it right now, sitting with you. We're experiencing the the wisdom and the vitality of the life that you have lived. But can you speak to that, you know, the difference between just getting older and actually becoming an elder? Like, how do we really pursue and center that in our lives as humans? I mean, you've already enumerated so many of the most important for for me so far that what I cherish about being, uh, if you look at all of the writing about elderhood and aging, I'm considered a young old. (laughs) So I know Mm -hmm. that there are, I have, who knows how lucky I'll be about how much longer I get to age, but. I'm in the early stages as a 64-year-old woman, um, but I feel strongly that I have less distraction around like what I consider to be my juice, my what my mm. plumb line is with my truest self. I don't have to work as hard to get to it because I don't have as many distractions. And that part of that is like my phase in life. My children are adults, you know, and that's everybody has a different level of like how much energy you still have to spend on that. And I I do have a, a parent that needs my attention still. So there are things in your life that require attention, but mostly I get to follow my own path. And that mm-hmm. is incredibly valuable. And I think if you've been fortunate to develop friendships and especially girlfriends, I think it's a, such a precious time to be able to be with those true friends, to be able to be mm-hmm. in a circle with other strong women. It's, there's nothing like it. That's what it's all about. And I think we have yeah. a job to do. I think the elders have a job to do right now. And I don't want to be distracted by caring about my, my body size because we've got a very important job to do right now as elders mm-hmm. around the earth yeah. and around women's rights. So many things. <laughs> we need to be putting yeah. all of our power toward like leadership as elders. So my advice yeah, is I, you I already, try not yeah. to get distracted. Try not to get distracted <laughs> by the, the little stuff. I already feel bad in my late 30s that I look back and think, well, I've already, I've wasted so much time thinking about these mm-hmm. really things that don't matter and are very fickle and fleeting. And um, I look forward to 
aging in that regard that I can move more toward my true authentic self and be less distracted um, and put less energy toward things that ultimately don't matter. Um, but I'm curious if you could speak a little bit to what we do until culture catches up with us, <laughs> because ultimately we still live in the world that we live in. And let's say that we're doing all of the internal work and we're eating intuitively and we're embracing our bodies as they change and we're trying to embrace a pro-aging mindset. But how do we exist, practically speaking, in a world that doesn't really support that? Yeah, I think you have to get comfortable with not being mainstream. I think if you have to be in the mainstream, it's going gonna, it's gonna to be difficult to be pro-aging because the, the ultimate messaging, the sales pitch that we're faced with, the the biggest messages are like when I am online and I'm just trying to see what people are exposed to, it's the same old thing. It's the same old diet and wellness culture thing. It's the same thing. It doesn't change. So you have to be willing to take a different tack. You have to be willing to, to step outside of that for your own sake to save your own life. I can only tell you just the women that I speak with are so grateful that they're no longer caught up in it. And they're sad that they were for the years that they were, but they're grateful that they have found a way to be more gentle with themselves, to be more true to themselves, and to feel like they're not all in their heads caught up in trying to get it right. Not so caught in all of their own guilt and shame. They feel like they've befriended themselves. Mm. So it's, it's, as we said at the top, it's effortful. Yeah, there, there is some effort. Yeah, and it's maybe part of what we can lean into some hope around is that that effort is okay. You know, I think we also live in a culture where we want things to be effortless. We want things to come easily. We want the healing to happen overnight. We want to go on the weekend retreat and be all fixed. And that's not really how healing works, especially not with things that are layered patterns from childhood and and decades long it's not it's not that simple so there's i think some beauty and hope in that i have yes. a question for you is there anyone that you whether it was growing up or in your early adulthood or even now that you really looked up to and admired as an elder whether that's someone in your family or someone in in culture that seemed like they were shining a beacon of doing something differently I grew up, um, I was born in 1958, so you have to remember, like, I was coming of age during, like, the Equal Rights Amendment conversation and Gloria Steinem, like, all of that feminism, that wave of feminism was very much in my conscious awareness, and I don't think there were that many women with different kinds of bodies doing that work. So when I started doing my work, I said, it feels like we've left the body out. It feels like we've left the body out of this conversation. 
And my hope is that that's a kind of what we're doing now with aging and body liberation coming together. So I have women that have really formed what I perceive to be like womanhood in the way that I want to experience it, but they don't have the bodies that I am looking for. It's very bizarre. I mm. still love Jane Fonda of all the voices out there. Yeah. And She's we wonderful. have conflictual messages about her body and, and she talks about that when she when she talks about her life. But she is She's probably at the top for me still. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. She's pretty, she's pretty amazing. Uh, I loved what she said recently on, on the wiser than me podcast about it. You think it's hard to be old. It's hard to be young. <laughs> it's just it's so hard. It's so, yeah. And there's just talk to any teenager. They're having a breakdown literally every <laughs> I have one. He is. He's having a breakdown yeah. every five minutes. <laughs> For sure. And that gets easier too. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Deb, uh, what do you feel like is at stake in this pro-aging mm -hmm. movement that I, Melissa, and I feel is kind of bubbling to the surface? We're seeing a lot of um, people embracing themselves at, at various stages of life. The changes that come with that, it feels so hopeful. It feels beautiful. Um, What's at stake, culturally speaking, for this movement if we don't lean into this embracing of what is, which I personally just perceive as it's reality. We are like newsflash, we're all aging. <laughs> we know where it's headed. We can try yes. and white knuckle it, like you say, and we can try and resist yes. it. But what's at stake yeah. if we keep <laughs> resisting and we don't embrace it? I want to say the planet. <laughs> I just really want to say the planet. <laughs> Because the effort to keep your body in a certain place drives consumerism, drives capitalism, drives overconsumption, drives lots of products. <laughs> and to yeah. try to be with what is, as you just said, to try to accept that your ship is going to sink, how do you want to sail it? actually frees up a lot of energy that I hope will also be directed towards saving the planet. So like if we can align about what's really at stake and let these distractions fall away, we can all come together to look at the bottom line, which is like rights for all people of all kinds of bodies, and especially women, especially people of, of different races and protecting the planet. So that's what's at stake in my mind. It's like not being distracted by this. We're losing a lot of like our own brain space to all of this. Hmm. That's such a powerful way to frame it that we're actually losing so much of our own capacity, our mm -hmm. own willingness and ability to to be present and to be of service yeah exactly yeah. yeah I think personally when I think about what's I guess a present fear that's still kind of on my mind is if I 
embrace my aging process and my let my body just be what it wants to be and um, don't rush to maintain my youthful appearance. Basically, if I allow that to happen, I think I have this, my, my ego or this very, very deep-seated fear of like, well, if I do that, then I won't be loved. Because mm-hmm. as a young person, I feel like I got a lot of attention and praise around the way that I looked. And I'm very aware that I'm such a dynamic person. That's not the reason that people love me in my life, at least not the people that I want to be around. Um, but have you had experience with that, Deb, of the more you leaned into love with yourself, did you experience more true and palpable, sincere love in your life? Or did you have to let some people fall away who didn't understand or didn't embrace who you really were? Oh, yeah. I lost people. I lost people. But I think the thing that's important is what you just said. The people who are really your people will be there for you. And actually, my personal experiences, the more you live in your own power, the more attracted people are to you. I believe Mm -hmm. that. I think the more you're authentic and step into your own power, the more attractive you are. You're just not yeah, I agree. fitting the pleasing that you experienced in the past. So letting that go, literally letting that go, is scary. You're, you are really letting go of what has been known, the formula that has worked. And that, that's, that's very unsettling. Yeah, so big yeah. respect. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm very aware too of how just like you you've been speaking to it when we focus so much of our attention on resisting aging or um hypermanaging our appearance to get quote unquote love and affection it's a huge distraction from not only very very important issues in the world including the yeah. world but also it diminishes our attention and span of focus and energy toward other parts of ourselves that are so worth nourishing and enriching. And, you know, if we focus so much on that, we we miss out on different layers of ourselves that we didn't even know were there because we're just so distracted. Um, has that been your experience as you've gotten older that you've been able to focus more attention on things that are just more important to you? Absolutely. A hundred percent. I feel that very strongly. Yeah. And sometimes that means a more a smaller circle, right? It means, mm. depending on how much passion you have about a particular, I have a lot of passion about a particular, what I think is a mission. So that really does narrow my circle. And then I have, you know, the people that I love that are at the center. So that, that, mm. that takes up a lot of my energy. Yeah. I have visions for things to come. We'll <laughs> see. We'll see. I have lots of energy for visions of things to come. Yeah. That's beautiful. Well, we love your vision. And you do have a, is it an online group program that you offer for women who are wanting to go deeper in this journey of healing? Mm-hmm. I have a small group coaching you tell us program about that? that I offer like four times a year. And... I also have an invitation-only membership 
of people who have been through that program. So people who have already done a certain level of work then can have a sense of belonging with others. And I do one-on-one coaching to both. So what, do you know the, the group program that you offer? Can you just tell us a little bit more of the format of that and we can share more information with our guests when this episode goes live? Sure. It's an eight-week small group, and we go through a curriculum that initially is about dismantling dining wellness culture myths and internalized ageism, and then about rebuilding and repairing the relationship with your body and orienting toward true care for yourself. I'm a dietitian, so of course there's some conversation around how you nourish yourself for vitality and aging the way you want to age, and also regulating your nervous system, how you can really reframe movement to feel playful instead of like a pushy have to in your life. And the thing that I feel strongly about is that we can talk about these principles forever, but until you really apply with like daily practices, you don't experience true change. So I am really invested in individualizing accessible practices for all that I do so that my clients can really, really experience small little bites over time until they look back over the eight Mm. weeks and see change. And then, of course, the, the community itself, just having other people that get you and that get this process is also very powerful. So that comes in yeah. like little eight-week small group online coaching on Tuesday mornings. And then we do like a, a follow-up on Fridays where we kind of brainstorm stuck places and answer any questions that may have come up, that kind of thing. Well, we'll share more information about that in the show notes for our listeners, for anybody that wants to learn more about what Deb is offering and work with her. So as we as we bring this to a close, coming back to that idea that you mentioned that now is the time to be thinking about this. And of course, there will be listeners of all ages, but there will be a lot of younger listeners. And so for someone that's in their 20s or 30s or 40s, what would you mm-hmm. say is an integral piece of understanding or wisdom to begin orienting to now to create a more easeful path through some of these shifts that are inevitable? I think the first step is really noticing how you feel around certain social media accounts, certain relationships, to really notice if you feel self-doubt or criticism arise when you are exposed to certain kinds of conversations that likely are about some sort of body shaming conversation or food shaming conversation or like a pushiness around a rigid rule set. Notice that. Notice how that you feel and see if you can literally protect yourself. And start to cultivate relationships and community that is much more about body liberation, much more about aligning with their true values. 
that's to me the most important thing to do mm. as a start. Yeah. Yeah. That's so practical. Thank you. Well, thank you, Deb. Thanks for taking the time and sharing your wisdom. We are so excited to share this with our listeners and give everyone a chance to connect with you more. Yeah. Thanks so much, Deb. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for listening to This Is Aging. If you enjoyed this episode and you'd like to help support the podcast, please share with others and leave a rating and review for us in iTunes or Spotify. You can also subscribe to the show wherever you listen to podcasts and follow us on all the social platforms at This Is Aging. Thanks again, and we'll see you next time. Please note the information shared in this episode is for educational purposes only and should not be considered a substitute for professional medical advice or consultation with a healthcare professional. In this episode, we may share links and references to products and services that may enable us to receive compensation from referrals or sales. This is Aging only recommends products and services that we use, love, and believe will be helpful to you.